Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. So, 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 Welcome to a crystal clear world of recorded music created especially for you, the film, television and radio producer. We invite you to listen to a sound sampling of selections taken from this new and ever-expanding giant library of recordings designed for your current productions. Whether your subject matter be past or present, light or serious, drama or documentary. Hello, welcome back. Hi there. Uh, EMIPM presents the Music Library. Uh, I'm back. Yeah, renegotiated your contract. <laughs> Private Jet got ticked off in the end. Yeah, got, got rid of that Alex Black guy after the show. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. <laughs> um, so we've got more library music for you uh, this month. We've got uh, a couple of wonderful guests. We've got Keith Mansfield, a library legend with us today. Uh, and we're going to speak to John Murphy later on about his film composing career. But uh, we're now joined by Keith Mansfield, who... Uh, um, so, Keith, I'm going to give you a little bit of an intro now. I'm going to use your own music to introduce you, um, <laughs> because it works really well. Okay. So here we go. <laughs> so this is Keith Mansfield. He's a lively legend. <laughs> Um, I think you probably you probably have a, maybe the most copyrights in the library. I'm not sure that, that there's a lot there. Um, he's the composer of the Grandstand theme tune, the Wimbledon theme tune, the Big Match theme tune. You've had your music used by Quentin Tarantino. You've been sampled by Danger Doom, Niles Barkley, Fatboy Slim, Madlib, to, to name a few. Wow. Uh, you did a lot of arrangements for Dusty Springfield and some of our classic tracks. Um, so welcome, welcome to the studio. Good, nice to be here. <laughs> and, Back and in was... Soho after all these years. <laughs> um, so we wanted to speak to you because there's a KPM All-Star show coming up on the 6th of October. And it's the, it's the first show you guys have all done for six years, or just over six years it'll be now. Wow. Um, and so this show, it's, it's, it's a kind of full event in that the... It's going to feature a sort of special preview screening of Sean Lee's documentary. Um, there's going to be a talk before the show. There's an exhibition of um, rare library album covers and some master tapes and things like that. Uh, we've got a couple of great DJs, Nandy Votel and Jane Weaver, who are going to be playing live music sets. Um, and there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of library albums and reissues on sale at the show, various books and things uh, that have just been out this year. So it's it's sort of a packed event that mm-hmm. we've we've not had before with with the library, which is which is great. And it's nice to it's nice to celebrate the music again in a live setting. Well, it's always fun to do. I can tell you that. Um, mostly because uh, we were. T- it's totally unexpected for the guys like myself who wrote a lot of this in the '60s and the 70s to think it's got a life 
all these years later. Mm. And one of the amusing things is, of course, that when we first started playing them, I can remember somebody said, why on earth are they playing by mu- from music? Well, some of the stuff had only ever been played once in the studio. That's mm. the, so, of course, you've got to see the music because you don't know how the thing goes. Um, but it's, that's one of the great um, aspects of library that none of us could have expected, that uh, it would have this longevity. So thanks very much, all you people out there who love our music. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was always, I guess, live music has always been anonymous. It's always been the sort of thing that you record, goes on an LP, and then it goes out to the TV companies to use. And then the first, uh, the first All-Star show you did, I think, was back in 2006 at the Jazz Cafe, mm-hmm. which I believe... Uh, am I right in saying that was as a celebration for Robin Phillips? It was celebrating Robin's uh, uh, the, the the Robin's uh, role in live music was actually uh, so colossal because um, he completely uh, was his own man. He took chances on people before they were established. He, he followed his gut instinct. Although he came from private education, his father, in fact, was the CEO of the of KPM. Mm. Uh, but Robin was not a company man in that way. He he definitely went his own route. He took chances, and um, uh, all the composers loved him, and the musicians mm. just loved him. Mm. And how was? Um how was that show to do? Because I guess that had you had offers to do shows before that, or was that the first? No, first I think that was it. Was it was there as a celebration of Robin's, um, of all that Robin had done for the libraries. I mean, I'm sure that people had wanted to do individually when lounge music came out. I know there were some people wanted to get us to do, uh, you know, to be involved. But this is a different thing. This was just specifically to do with KPM Library and celebrating Robin's uh, life. Mm. So that's how that came about. It was great fun, I have to say. Mm. Yeah, um, and to a, a packed crowd, I think as well in there. Which it was know. packed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and speaking about Robin Phillips, it's uh, it, it's timely that Oliver Lomax has just had he, his book published sure. about, about Robin mm. Phillips, and so that that's published by Vocalion Press. Uh, I think it's the first book they've ever they've ever published. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's, it's the first book Oliver ha- has written, and it's a a history of, uh, well, I guess a biography of Robin Phillips trying his history through KPM and through Bruton. It is, Robin's the one who celebrated, but really is digging deep into where library started from. So uh, Oliver's really taking it onto another level for anybody who's interested in that sort of music. Although it, it, uh, it concentrates on KPM and Bruton, because Robin started Bruton as well. But it, he really does go into where live music came from, how it uh, all operated. So it is a very interesting book for those people who like library music. Mm. And it's, it's a good time to be a library fan at the moment because uh, there's the David Hollander book, which uh, came out recently as well, which is sort of an overview of, of many different libraries mm. uh, going across European libraries as, as well as um, uh, KPM and Bruton. Uh, and as we mentioned before, there's the documentary which is being screened at the show, um, and we're we're sort of seeing sort of seeing a boom period of reissues of library albums at mm. the moment. So we've got a number. There's a few of yours coming out mm. again. Oh, good. Um, via Be With Records, who they're doing, I think, eleven reissues of ours later this year. You mentioned at the start of the interview about library being anonymous. Mm. That that is true. It was in the sixties. The sixties when we went for library, we were all involved in pop music. I was my day job. I was a musical director for all the record companies. 
So I'd be working with Dusty Springfield, Tom Jones, all, all sorts of people. And that was what we did in our day job. But the library was something different. It was a lot more fun, a lot less stress. You didn't have to have a hit record. With library, there was a lot of different music that editors needed. And uh, because there wasn't a hit required, it just took all the pressure off mm. you. And, uh, in fact, I, I stopped being a commercial writer by choice in the 70s because the library offered me... I could be whoever I wanted to be in music. I could write for a symphony orchestra. I could write for a big band, jazz band. I could write for, for pop music. I could write for synthesizers. Whatever I wanted to do that I felt I could do, all those, all those opportunities were there for me to, to realise as a composer. There's not many areas of music that you can do that. I mean, I, I had my own orchestra on CBS, but CBS naturally, they wanted me to have an image and that's what they wanted me to do. But that's not who I was and that's not mm. what I wanted to do. The library allowed me to do that. To the amusement of when sometimes I'd meet famous American people who knew, knew of me and when they found out I was doing library music, they were horrified. <laughs> uh, which I found amusing because it's been a wonderful life. It gave me complete control over my, uh, my own existence, paid me a lot of money. Mm. And gave me, um, you know, plenty of room to be a, a person rather than just be owned by the business. Mm. Uh, we're going to play a track from that first live show uh, mm. now, which is it's actually one of your most famous uh, library compositions as well that that you performed. Mm. Uh, a track called "Funky Fanfare." Ah. Oh. <laughs> Like a great show, yeah. yeah, yeah. There is a story actually attached to the composition of Funky Fanfare. That is, that in fact, Funky Fanfare wasn't the first recording. Two weeks earlier, um, I was doing a session for Decca with a drummer called uh, Tony Newman, and uh, they wanted me to write a B-side. So the session was Decca. It was Monday afternoon. I get up Monday morning, and I've got to write a B-side. So. I, get, I just get up, put a record on to get me in the mood. It's half past six in the morning. I just write it. That's what I wrote. I had to write it, of course, score it for the band, mm. get to Decca, get the, the, the parts for the A-side from the copyist, give him that one to copy while I'm doing the A-side, which we took two and a half hours doing the A-side. <laughs> then we had a break. Then we did Funky Fanfare, which was actually called Soul Thing. The record got turned over and Soul Thing, uh, uh, Soul Thing which it was called originally, mm became the A-side, and then two weeks later I recorded the same piece of music in Germany for the library, and KPM p published both versions. But in fact, Funky Fanfare wasn't the first version, it was Soul Thing. <laughs> and it's been sampled a lot, it's been yeah. used a lot. Yeah. Um, I think, it was it not long after you recorded it, there's that band Ars, Ars Akel, Ars, I forget what their name is, but they did a version of it as well. And yeah, Ars, Ars Angel or something, that, Archangel, yes, yes. Ars, Archangel, whatever. Yeah, there's a few... Few singers did versions of it as well, yeah. Um, and so with the with that first All Stars show, how did you go about coming up with the the sort of set list? How did you decide what songs you were going to play? Did you sort of sit down and think about where, like, who sampled you or things like that? Because I guess at that time we weren't um, really aware of the sampling. So mm. I mean, I, I mean, a little bit aware of it, but uh, basically the obvious thing was we we're all picking the music that was famous with the public. 
So um, uh, I think all basically we were probably told by the library which titles they wanted us to do, which were, as I say, obvious tracks. So the famous theme tunes. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And then a year later, you got an invitation to do another one, which came via Jarvis Cocker. Uh, oh, that was more than a year later. That was the third one. That was the third one. Yeah, we did it? we did two at Jazz Cafe. Oh, two at Jazz Cafe. Yeah, then I think we did one at um, when C- CTS closed down, and then Jarvis Cocker, I think, was the fourth gig. Four, okay. Yeah. Uh, my figures were wrong. That's all right. <laughs> <That's> all right. <laughs> your, your figures are never so wrong, I'm going to sack the researcher. <laughs> <laughs> Five researchers um, we've had working on this for three weeks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, how, so Jarvis Cocker... Um, chose you to play at his meltdown festival which he, right. he yeah. was curating which mm. you know he'd followed in the footsteps of people like uh david bowie robert wyatt who'd curated it um previously and then can you remember how that happened how you got the the knock at the door almost from from jarvis did it come oh well it was just kpm would get in touch with us to say mm. somebody at the office would be in touch uh that there was this uh, chance of a gig at the festival hall and um if we were available obviously we were all keep, we were all very pleased to do it so uh, yeah it was a no brainer as mm. they say did you did you feel that the crowd for that show was different to the previous ones having it come via Jarvis and and his sort of connection to to music in a in a different way well it wasn't uh, all the other things have been sp- uh, specifically aimed at the KPM mm. uh, you know it's just a one off concert whereas the festival the Jarvis Cocker festival of course was lots of different uh, music and in fact on that evening we weren't the only concert all being used we i think were in the um queen elizabeth queen elizabeth yeah. hall that's right and i think we had somebody in the festival hall so mm-hmm. you know uh there was a lot going on so we weren't the main focus and mm-hmm. um, was it fun to play because i mean I guess that was moving up to a, a bigger venue from the previous one they're always well. fun they're always fun to play because um you're you're playing music that the public already love and um you're, you're mixing with guys that you've known for a long, long time, you know, all mm. your life, musical life, basically. And uh, and even some of the musicians, the young musicians, um, the amusing thing is a lot of them, when I first did these concerts, I'd never worked with those players, but I had worked with their dads. You know? <laughs> so that was sort of uh, quite funny um, when you knew all their dads and you didn't know them. Mm. Uh, but they all had bald heads because it was very fashionable to shave your head. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, another live track we're going to play okay. now, one of your famous theme tunes. Um, and again, this is sort of another flavour alongside Funky Fan for another flavour of, you know, what what will be played on the 6th of October. Stuck out there. Yeah. So hang on, what? That was a little bit of grandstand at the end. Yeah, was it, uh, was it a medley? Uh, yeah, that was a sports medley. I do. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, which is great. I mean, I, I remember the first All Stars show I went to, which was in it was my first week at EMI actually, and it was in 2012, which mm. was the Islington Assembly Hall oh, show. Yeah, yeah. And I just remember seeing the grandstand theme tune turn into this real lad anthem of all these guys stood up, chests puffed out. (laughs) 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 It's like people singing to an instrumental track is always something to behold, I think. 
Um, they, However, you just sang Wimbledon, not Grandstand. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> He's testing me out here, this guy. Yeah, see if I know my own tunes. <laughs> if anyone knows Keith, knows. Yeah. <laughs> it's embarrassing. Um, I did do an interview on uh, at Wimbledon last year. And this young interview came up to me after the main interview to do it for Radio 5. He was a smashing guy. But he didn't know it. He couldn't sing a note. He would try to sing along with me. And he couldn't remember the melodies. And then when he did, he couldn't sing them. It was really quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great interview. Great fun. No, he was. He was great fun. Um. I mean, it's good, and I, I like I like the fact that you can go go to a concert and you can hear those those theme tunes, mm. you know, those sort of things that uh, a lot of us have grown up with. Mm. And I think a lot of the, a lot of that music is is often more familiar to us than than some of the artists we would claim are our favourite artists, you know, because we've heard it so much. And it was it was just fascinating seeing the crowd sing to some of that stuff, and or suddenly get up and start dancing when. Um, like when Alan starts playing the countdown clock music sure, and things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, it's the sort of concert that you, you don't really get anywhere else outside of a, a KPM All-Star show with those sort of theme tunes. And you can see the influence of that coming through in that there's the uh, comedian Matt Berry, who's, his new album, which is coming out, is a compilation of theme tunes. Uh, Unfortunately, none of ours. I need to have words what? with him. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he's done things like the Rainbow theme tune. Um, well, I forget which the other one was I heard recently. One of those 70s sitcoms, he did the theme tune to that as well. Um, but it's, you know, it's funny how those theme tunes, they sort of permeate through memory, mm. I think. Um, well, I think it's family. Uh, I've seen a lot of reviews where they say because children grew up watching that with their father. Mm. And so when they become adults and the same thing, because it's been on for so many years, um, you, you know, you, you, you heard it as a child with your father, then you become a father and you're hearing it with your own son. So it's that, that's what's sort of unusual about it. Mm. And it's all because it's linked with the with the main thing that's there, which is the sport. That's what these things were for. And of course, because we were watching the sport, these, this music went with it. It just was a wonderful fit. Mm. And that's why it lasted so long. Yeah. And, and it's, it had the impact. It's almost hard to disassociate the music from the sport when you hear it again as well. Mm. You know, it's just Wimbledon. You just associate with the popping of, of tennis balls on a racket a lot of the time. And the same with, uh, the big match is another sort of classic one that you just associate with yeah. that, and uh, and I think it works the same over in the US with the Monday night Monday night football theme, which is the Johnny Pearson track, yeah. um, where that seems to be so um, evocative of, of of that game. But though I often talk about that particular track because that's one of my favourite uh, library pieces written by Johnny. Uh, who had a great deal of respect for. The, the thing about that, it was a piece of live music that was written for what they call the industrial uh, area. And in those days, this is in the late 60s, industrial was heavy, sweaty, big. So um, the music had to be that. And the track was very successful for what it started out to be, which was an industrial piece of music. But it had this other life to it, which was picked up in America, they, they recognised the muscular, masculine side of it and they put it to the Monday Night Football and it's been used for 45 years, whatever. So that's a wonderful accolade to Johnny's, um, 
genius as a writer. Definitely. And you often pay tribute to Johnny Pearson and, and Alan mm. Morehouse when you do these mm. uh, these live shows as well. Mm. So, I mean, will, will you be doing that in the, the forthcoming show? I'm a... oh, well, I certainly do Alan Morehouse's piece. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'll do the... Um, the Johnny Pierce one, because the line is a little bit small. It does yeah. require a, the full complement of brass. And when I've done it, I've never quite enjoyed it with a smaller brass section, which we have with the KPM All-Stars. It, it just doesn't really... Mm, it's disappointing to hear. Yeah. yeah. So I probably won't do that one. OK. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming in. That's my pleasure. And uh, really looking forward to the show on the 6th of October. Good. Uh, and can yes. we get Keith back in to do the full... Yes, His, history of Keith Mansfield and and definitely would love to have you back in sure. to to talk yeah. you through the entirety of sure. your career because there's yeah. there's so much we haven't even touched upon yet. Sure. Um, so thank you very much. I'm going to play out uh, with another classic, uh, one that will definitely be heard at the show, and one which will be sung by people that know the tune, unlike me who <laughs> tried to do it a minute ago. Uh, thank you very much, Keith. Okay, my pleasure. Grandstand, classic, awesome Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Keith Mansfield, legend. Yeah, yeah, one of the big, big names in library. Yeah, and that gig could be. I mean, you never know, but each time I'm, I'm always thinking this probably it could be the last time we get the KPM All Stars together. So, yeah, amazing to be here in those tunes live. Next up, we have an interview that I recorded a couple of weeks ago uh, with John Murphy who's the composer who did the music to 28 Days Later and Sunshine and also worked originally with Guy Ritchie on Lockstock, Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch. Yep. Um, so we managed to grab him. He's actually, the reason it was a, uh, recorded outside of the show is he's in LA, so he's on a different time zone and we managed to grab him in the middle of scoring for a new TV series, Les Miserables, uh, which is based on the book. Anyway. Which is just coming out on the BBC very soon. I think, coming out on the BBC very mm. soon. He was in the middle of scoring it swearing slightly and getting stuck in when we <laughs> when we interviewed him so uh, uh first show is going to be aired soon um so yeah let's go for it so this is emi pm presents a radio show and we've we're very lucky to be joined by the composer john murphy hi there john hey guys and I think this is a first for us. We're doing a telephone interview with John, who's actually in LA. Is that right, John? No, I'm actually just in Bootle. I was lying about that to look cool. <laughs> <laughs> just down the road, really. No, I'm in LA, yeah. La, la, la. <laughs> Ten in the morning. Yeah. So we're also joined by Howard Price, who works uh, with me here at uh, Sony ATV Music Publishing. Uh, and Howard looks after all of the film and TV scores of EMI Publishing and, and Sony ATV. And Howard, you've been working with John for the last 15 years, is that right? Uh, good afternoon, and yeah, that's right. Um, it's longer, uh, actually, very Howard, good. I think. Yeah, well, it is actually, time does fly. It's more than 15 <laughs> years now, to be honest. But uh, it's been a real pleasure uh, to to work with John and uh, through his career and uh, to, to know John on a personal level as well. So very happy to be joining you both today. Brilliant. Yeah, same well, I, I think thought... I'm the bane of Howard's life, to be honest. I think he's been very, <laughs> he's been very generous there. But uh, but no, he's he's just been a star from day one, you know. Um, he's he's been there right at the beginning for me and uh, it's been he's like he's a top bloke 
you know, I've got to say that. Really well, thank anyway. you very much, John. I'll make sure <laughs> I put it yeah, re- returns and compliments <laughs> as we can. There you go. Um, okay, we've done that now. It's out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> so I know we've been going back and forwards on, e- on email a bit because you've been really busy at the moment. You're, you're in the middle of working on a project. Is that right, John? Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I can talk about it now, which is good. Um, I'm actually scoring a six-episode series for the BBC, which is... Um, Les Miserables, uh, not the musical, because clearly anyone who knows me would know I'd be terrible for doing the musical. Um, it's actually the the original Victor Hugo novel, which, strangely enough, I'd I'd read when I was younger. So when I had to do the the Skype with the producers and the director, they were they were impressed that um, I'd actually. You know, a scouser had read Victor Hugo. You know, I think that's Impressed what it was. They were like, book. "Really?" And yeah. I went, "Yeah, for sure." You know, so um, but I read it. Yeah, I read it when I was on tour years ago. Um, I used to take a lot of big books away with me on the tour bus, and that was one of the the, the books I sort of went through when I was about nineteen, traveling through France in a tiny cramped cabin on a tour bus. So um, so I knew me I knew me stuff for once. You know. So, um, so yeah, so it's the book. So I'm sort of in the throes of that right now. But it's it's fantastic. I mean, it's the, the, some of the performances are amazing, and um, it looks just beautiful. So it's 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 a great great job to be working on. And John, we discussed the uh, to an extent the process of the the score and the style of music. So has that been an interesting challenge? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know more than you can say. So yeah, it has yeah. because. You know, I mean, originally I wanted to do the, you know, when I I sort of envisaged this, I thought, great, I'm going to get a chance to do one of those big, beautiful, rich, dark kind of um, huge epic scores that I don't often get asked to do, you know. Um, But, you know, once I was sort of sort of on this and I ended up, you know, we had the creative meeting kind of afterwards, um, you know, it definitely was more what they want to do is is a bit more sort of um earthy and truthful and and not hollywood basically um not that i could do hollywood anyway but they certainly wanted it to be not polished and they they liked the idea of it being very rootsy and um earthy and organic and a bit gnarly you know so that you know is its own challenge you know i mean i looked, i kind of like that stuff so i it's not like it's going to be a big U-turn for me, but, um, you know, I had to sort of change my focus a bit. And so now it's all about these gritty, distorted, hurdy-gurdies and uh, <laughs> stuff like that. But I know I know so much about French folk music now. It's amazing. I'm like an authority because I've had to learn this stuff. And uh, so yeah. we've got some really, like, cool instruments going on now, you know. And, you know, with me, I'll always take an instrument and then distort it or play it backwards or crunch it up, you know. So it's still me. It's just I'm using instruments that, that I'd never even heard of six months ago. So, so yeah. But it's fun, you know. And it, every project should be its own thing. And this is what this is. And it's it's been fun. Um, so yeah. it's going to be great, I think. Yeah, and so not a, a purely period score in the sense that you're maybe, from what you're saying, bringing it. A, a modern contemporary take on some of those. those yeah, I mean, because even though they they like the idea of the palette, if you like, being that kind of earthy and, and digging into some of the instruments that were around at the time, 
what do you want from me is a, is a very modern approach to it. So it's it should be a cool hybrid, you know, and it's interesting because I'm not sure it's ever, if it's ever been done before that way, but um, it's certainly, it's not just a hybrid of sounds, it's it's a hybrid of, of sensibilities, you know, because you have these certain instruments which have a limited range um, and then having to then deal that into like a, a sort of make that work within a broader tapestry emotionally for the score you know it was a challenge because you know it's okay saying let's turn all these strings into hedigerdies but a hedigerdy goes from one note to another note you know it only goes in so far so you've then got to then be a bit more creative in how you do that so what we've been doing is kind of sampling some of these things and then making them play low and making them play high so you know right from the get-go you know it can't be um very straight it's you know it's already a sort of modern way of using these these sounds you know so you know and we enjoy that you know i mean me and tyler like messing things up so we sort of always end up um and making it something that it wasn't to begin with. So it should be interesting, you know, it should be interesting. Certainly nothing that I've done before. Yeah, I mean, that's a great insight into the process and the um, challenges that a different project can bring. And Tyler being your um, your, your engineer. Yeah, sort of right-hand man, engineer, producer, yeah. sound maestro, you know. He's sort of, you know, he's been with me for right a man. long, long time. Through all those movies, you know, so... So we work closely together. And so where are you in the project now, John? Is uh, what's being completed and what's still to be done? Well, it's in, it's the final phase now, really, because, you know, all of the um, the, the in-camera stuff was written. So that's that was delivered. They shot to this stuff because they needed that stuff to shoot to, you know, all the sort of piano pieces, the bar pieces, kids singing, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that's all done. They've actually finished shooting now. Um when that was over, I started writing all the themes um, because I didn't have a picture yet. So I just started, there were so many themes. You know, you've got this huge epic story across these, you know, three decades. Um, so there's a lot of different characters. There's a lot of different storylines. There's a lot of different situations. So it's not like a movie where you might have maybe, you know, three, four, five main themes. There's themes running throughout this and some, you know, so there was a lot of work just to do to get the thematic material in place. So that's all done now. So that's all out of the way and all this stuff's been approved. So where I'm at now is they've just started sending me through the um, a sort of rough cut, if you like, of the first few episodes. So now I've got to work all that stuff into to the episodes and then it'll come thick and fast then. And then I, I think I've got to deliver the first episode in about a month. So once this... Wow. Yeah, I know. And then it's like two weeks between each one, so... So yeah. we're all, you know, it goes in the trenches now, you know. So um, okay. there's a lot of material written, so hopefully we'll get the benefits of that and I can just pull from all that stuff. I mean, it was, there's literally been about, I don't know, 60 or 70 pieces written already. Um, okay, you know, wow, and then that's we'll be a lot recording. I know, there's a lot of stuff. It's, it's, it's overwhelming when you sort of step back and look at it, so I'm trying to think of an episode at a time. Um, but there's yeah. a lot of good material there and a lot of stuff they really love, so... Um, once I wake them in to the rough cut, as soon as I get the, the lock picture for that episode, then I can quickly grab in whatever musicians I need and, and play whatever I need to play myself live, you know, because right now it's just right out of the box and it's all kind of fake. So there'll be a big rush to re-record as much as we can with the real deal. 
and then quickly mix it and then slam into episode two and then um, keep going. Hopefully keep going. So extra special thanks for your time today. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> fine. Well, it's funny. It's come right at the point where I was literally, uh, you know, about to start the the first episode today. And I, it, it it's given me a little, what's the word? Um, a little time to pause. Yeah, it's just a little bit. Okay, let's get this done. And then, you know, and then I can sit down, have a couple of beers, calm the nerves and then just throw myself at it. So, um it's come at the perfect time, really. Great. Well, I, let's let's um, take you back to the beginning then, if you don't mind. And I just want to ask how you became, well, how you started writing score music and how you got into being a composer for film and media. Right. Um, <laughs> well, it's... <laughs> how long do we have? <laughs> I always laugh at this question because it's like, it's, it's, it's not at a... It certainly wasn't a typical sort of way to get here, you know. Um, I, mean, right. I played in in a lot of terrible bands in the nineties, and um, uh, I mean, I got into the writing. Um, I, th- I think it was I was seventeen, and I got a job playing bass with the Lotus Eaters. Remember the Lotus Eaters? First yep. picture of you and all that stuff. That's true. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, and I got offered the job. I was seventeen, and I thought this is awesome. You know, so we, you know, I toured around Europe with them for a couple of years, and and I loved it. You know, we'd never really been out of Liverpool and suddenly, you know, we're playing arenas and Paris and Italy. It was first time I ever tasted foreign food, you know. It was just a, you know, it was a big revelation for me. So I loved it. Um, and when that ended, I didn't really want to go back home. So, I, you know, I kind of fell into that session player thing and I toured with a few other uh, sort of bands in the 90s. And I did that till I was about 24, 25. But along the way, I ended up co-writing some stuff with some of these bands. And that was cool because, you know, you're hearing something you've written on the radio or you're doing it on TV and all that stuff. So I was already into the writing by then. But, you know, but even that gets sort of tedious after a while. You know, and there's only so much, like, porn you can watch on a tour bus before you start thinking, <laughs> there's got to be more to life than this, you know? Yeah. Um, but I couldn't really do anything else. and I, So I wasn't sure what to do. And then... Around that time, I was in London and I got drunk with an editor one night and he, he, he said he was making a film about a Jewish pig farmer. And <laughs> because we were hammered yeah. and we're in Soho and we were, you know, he said, you know, do you want to write some songs for it? So, you know, we were paralytic by then. So, of course, I said, yeah. And then I just forgot about it. And then six months later, he, he kind of got my number and he rang out the blue and said, OK, the film's finished. Do you still want to write those songs? So I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. So we got together with, with Dave Hughes, who was in one of the bands with me, because um, he had a little studio set up. And we did some songs and he liked them. And then he said, look, we've got no money to hire a real composer. Do you know how to write a film score? So I said, you know, being sort of the way I was, I said, yeah, yeah, no problem. Of course, you know, yeah, we'll do that. Don't worry, we'll sort that out. Sorted. And then I went to Dave and said, look, you know, what's a film score? Is it like the music in between the songs? And he's like, well, yeah, kind of. And he said, you know, we can't do that. And I said, well, I've already told him we've got to do this film score, you know. It's too late. So we ended up doing it. But because we didn't know how to anything about film scores, we just thought, well, why don't we just write songs, but we won't put any lyrics on them? And then it'll kind of feel like instrumental, you know. So, So that's what we did for the whole film. But the film came out, and it was Leon the Pig Farmer. So the film came out, 
and it won all these awards in Europe and and at the festivals, and we won some awards for the music. You know, because I think people just got us wrong. It probably felt like we were some fresh new take on the the classic film score structure, but really we were just clueless and we didn't know anything to do other than write songs without words. But I think people thought we were a bit kind of quirky. So when that came out and it did well, the director said, do you want to do the, you know, my next film? And then the producer was doing another film and he said, do you want to do my film? And then so suddenly... From nowhere, we were film composers. And that yeah, was it. You know, we were film. really... We were so clueless, it was unbelievable. But there we were with a film under our belt and two in the pipeline. And so we just thought, well, let's just figure out how this works, you know, because we loved doing it. It was a laugh. You know, I think we got 500 quid for doing the film and we spent most of that just on beer and a harmonica player, you know. Um, <laughs> but we wanted to do it again and we, we loved it. And we just said, let's just learn how to do it. And then... From them, we ended up getting more films done, and then from them, you meet more people, and and suddenly we were, you know, we had a dozen films behind us. So it's um, wow. it's and, and not how you're supposed like... to do it, you know. People no, go, yeah. I mean, it's terrible because you know I meet people over here, and it's like you meet these fresh-faced kids who want to be an intern, and they're like, yeah, I, I've just studied film composition at Juilliard for five years, and you just think, but can you write? You know, that's awesome, but. And well done, you know, but can you write a tune, you know? And and, and it's just a very strange way to get there. Um, and some of them, are, you know, some of these kids are fantastic, but some of them you can just see that they're, they're, just, they're just nice kids who studied for five years, you know, and you think, well, you're going to have to do a bit more than that, you know, to survive here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we sort of did it, the, the, you know, I... It's nice to think it was doing it the hard way, but in truth, we did it the lucky way, I think is probably the more, the more truthful way. Um, but well, yeah. you have to but create we your own luck. Yeah. Drink with the right editors. Whatever. You've got to get drunk um, a lot, I think, and, you, and, and you've got to kind of lie at the right time, I think is the, is the yeah. trick there. <laughs> but we worked hard. I mean, once we got given the chance, we, I mean, we literally we killed ourselves trying to learn how to do it. And, and you know... From that point on, whatever we were on, we always thought it was our last film. So we were always going yeah. out on a high, you know. We always threw ourselves into it, like, ridiculously. We wouldn't sleep for days, and we always thought, this is it, it's going to end now, so let's just go out on the best thing we've ever done. And we had that attitude. We never got... You know, we were never arrogant that we were sort of, oh, we're film composers now. It was never that. It was always... We were always waiting to get found out. And we always didn't, you know, we always had that feeling of we can't let these people down because they trusted us to do this. So, and we carried that all the way through. And we, you know, and I don't think that it ever changed for me either, you know. Even when me and Dave split up, I still had that, you know, I think that sort of working class insecurity was always there where you think this could be the last one. So I'm going to leave it on the field, you know. Um, yeah. So, you know, I don't think that'll ever leave, you know. Um, but that's not a bad thing because it means you, you're always working your hardest, you know. Yeah. But that's basically and that, and that how I got you... into this. That was it. That's the, that's the nutshell version, you know. Well, that, and I mean, that leads um, well on to the, the next question that you, you're self-taught, you didn't study music formally. <laughs> Um, and so whether that's been an advantage or a, a disadvantage, I thought you, you were making the comment about there's these very polished um, people who come out of music schools, etc. But 
it's it's not simply the education; it's then putting it into yeah. I mean, you, practice. You've sort of got. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it would be wonderful to have that knowledge, you know, at hand. And and there's been so many times when, you know, I felt very insecure about not having gone through that education. But, you know, I think, for me at least, it helped. It actually helped because, you know, when I first got to LA, you know, it definitely felt that I had to try harder to sort of prove myself. And every time I did orchestral sessions, it was hell because, you know, I didn't even know the names of some of the instruments, you know. We'd have this 60-piece orchestra to be. And there was one time, very early on, I think it was probably the first session, and it was a Warner's film called Chain of Fools with... Um, Selma Hayek and Jeff Goldblum. So for, for me, it was a huge deal, you know. And I could hear something was wrong, and I knew it was something to do with the brass. So I stopped the session, and I could really hear it was wrong. So I said, "Look, something's not right. Can I hear you play individually so I can so I can see what's wrong?" And I was pointing at the instruments I thought it was, but I didn't know what it was called. <laughs> and so all I could say, I was pointing, going that one, that big, brass and they were thing. looking at me, yeah. And I ended up saying the one that looks like plumbing. And so, of course, the whole session, the whole orchestra's cracking up now. Um, you know, they're all just falling about that. I, uh, and he thought I was being disrespectful and funny, but I wasn't. I just didn't know what it was called. So the guy's like, starts playing. I went, yeah, that's the one. Just don't play. <laughs> you know, and then the session carried on, and I'm thinking, I need to at least know what the names of the orchestra instruments are, you yeah. know. But there was a lot of things like that where people would kind of look at me, the conductor would look around and, you know, you knew what he was thinking, you know. He was like, oh, my God. So there was a lot of times like that. But but after a bit, I started to realise that um, it sort of, I, I mean, for me, it helped me because what it did is it forced me to do things my own way. And I, because of that, I ended up just having my own sound anyway. You know, I didn't have the technique to sound like anybody else, so I just ended up being like a little kind of, you know, my own little cottage industry of my way of doing things, and that was, and that just grew, and I developed that. And you, by virtue of that, you end up with very much your own sound. And in a town where there are 10,000 guys who can come and do an orchestral score, when you've got your own little thing going on, it it gives you an advantage because if you want you know if you were to want that sound that twenty eight days later sound or that lock stock or snatch sound or whatever it was, then you know I wasn't really in any competition because it was only me that did that weird little sound you know so it it absolutely helped me um, and after a while you know I I just stopped being insecure about not knowing the other side of things. Um, yeah. And to be honest, I mean, for me, the composers I loved anyway were the guys who had their own DNA. You know, they, yeah. the guys that no matter what they did, you could hear, you could hear them in their stuff. You know, like Morricone and Bernard Herrmann and John Barry to a degree as well. And those were the guys I loved anyway. So to be in that company and just to at least be doing, you know, it didn't bother me that people would go, oh, yeah, that's John Murphy. It, it, for me, that was a compliment, you know, especially when you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're in the middle of so many talented people. If somebody could well, say, oh, think, that sounds like... T-. For me, that was great, you know. Yeah, and I, I think that's definitely so. And um, so we, we we find that you are a name that's referenced. So if we've got a, a, 
a music brief, somebody's coming to us saying, we want something that sounds like a certain composer, you sometimes hear the phrase Elfman-esque. Yeah. And we also hear people asking for, we want something like John Murphy. We can offer them John Murphy himself. But the, um, <laughs> so, I mean, and I think that's because you have got a distinct sound and, um, so we were going to ask what uh, what do you think it is that's helped you create that distinct sound, and you've uh, you kind answered. of answered it. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's that, really, exactly yeah. it. I mean, yeah. I think that's yeah. I mean, just being forced into doing it your own way is is because you know. I mean, the reason why these guys that are referenced are referenced are because they have their own unique thing going on. Um, so you know, for me, I didn't have a choice. I had to just go my own little road. Um, and it's just one of the byproducts of that that you end up becoming, you know, some kind of reference point for good or for bad, whether people like you or not. I mean, people could just as easily go, the last thing I want is that John Murphy sound, you know. So a reference <laughs> point isn't always a great thing, you know. But that's fine, you know. But it's it's cool to be some kind of reference point for sure, you know, because at yeah. least it means that, you know, I wasn't trying to be sort of um, somebody else, you know. And at least if and I know you've I know you've been asked before to actually rip off yourself, so to speak oh, many times, yeah, as you know, yeah, 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 I'm actually not even that good at doing it. There's some guys who rip me off better <laughs> than I do, you know, I don't know how that works out, but yeah. um yeah, but I always cringe at that, but you know it's I mean, it's because you don't want to go back on on your old stuff, you know, you're always trying to do something different, and it's it's like when you know you go to a screen and when you you're sort of up for a job. And they kind of want you, and you go to the screening, and you watch the movie, and half the film is tempted with your music, and you're like, that's not going to make me want to do this, you know? Because when you write something for something in your head, it's always about that scene, or it's about whatever. So hearing it put in a weird context just is always really uncomfortable for me, you know? Um, yeah. But, you know, it is what it is. It's, um, it's good to be any sort of reference point, I guess. So we should, we should play a track... Um, and I think first up we're going to play Adagio in D major, uh, which is, D, sorry, D, <laughs> Adagio in D minor. I've just had a, a correction from uh, <laughs> Well, the funny thing is, uh, it's, it's actually called that, but it's actually in E minor. It's because it did change it. <laughs> well, even better. Yeah, which is people just keep saying, this is not in D minor. I know it's not in D minor. Yeah, you write something. That. You, you, the sort of title becomes the key that it's in, you know. But that, but when you're doing, uh, rearranging things for films, you change things in all kinds of keys, you know. It's just that the famous version of it is is actually an E minor. But yeah, <laughs> one of those so little quirks, you know. It, so. so yeah, I, you know, I am aware of it. It's just the, it was just the way it was. It was in D minor when it was written. Yeah, so anyway. we'll play a Dajo in D minor in E minor. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not even an Adagio, I don't think. I think it's an Adagiata or something. So, total misnomer of a title, to be honest. But uh, I can't change it now. So. No. Okay, so uh, Adagio in D minor, and this is from uh, the science fiction film Sunshine. So, um, John, the 
Adagio in D minor um, featured in um, Sunshine, but actually um, it was written a number of years before. It was. It was written... Um, it, it's a funny thing, actually, because I'd been to Cream all night and... I sort of came, you know, the nightclub, which was at the time, it was all the, it was, it was the deal. So we'd all been out and I'd come back to my flat, which was in town and I couldn't sleep for numerous reasons. Um, <laughs> and the rain was pouring outside and it was like five in the morning. It sounded amazing. And I sat at the piano and I just played these chords one after another. It was one of those things that it just kind of writes itself. Once you get the main pattern and then the next bit was building and then it was rising and I'm just peacefully playing away. But in my head, I could still hear the like, boom, 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 from Cream. I mean, it wasn't really, you know, I couldn't hear it. It was just in my head, you know, because yeah. I'd been listening to that for like five hours nonstop. But I'm playing these soft chords and I keep hearing and I thought that would be awesome to have as a string thing. But to have like a four on the floor come in halfway through, you know. One of those silly ideas you have when you really should be trying to get to sleep. So that's how that came about. And it wasn't until a few, you know, and I'd sent it to you, you know, and we published it. And, and then a few years later, I think it was four or five years later, we were doing um, Sunshine and I'd written something for the, the sort of sacrifice thing and it just wasn't that great and Danny wasn't that sure of it. So I just laid up this track because I'd already demoed it you know, a while back. So I laid up the track and then I played that to Danny and he just loved it. And I said, but this is an old track. He said, it doesn't matter, let's just use this and do whatever, you know. So that's how it ended up on Sunshine, which would be disappointing to a lot of people because I think people associate that with like, God, he wrote that scene really well, but the sad truth is... It, and it's such a sort of standout cue and uh, scene from, from the film. Um yeah. And Danny being Danny Boyle, the Danny director Boyle, of the yeah. film, of course. Yeah. yeah. And um, another uh, film that you worked on with Danny Boyle, um, 28 Days Later, and um, the score to that being one of the most recognised horror soundtracks of um, all time. And wh what do you think uh, works so well um, with that score? And also, it's, it's very interesting how widely um, cues from... Um, 28 Days Later, have been reused in other contexts, be it um, Trailer for Avatar or um, a Peugeot car advert or Louis Vuitton. So it's quite incredible to think that a scene where Killian uh, Murphy <laughs> is pushing through somebody's eyes with his thumbs yeah. then gets reused to... Um, to promote high-end handbag. hand handbags. Yeah, yeah. handbag with a lovely girl and a balloon flying up. I know, it's funny. I think it was one of those perfect storms, I think, Howard, where um, everything just worked out. You know, with 28 Days Later, it, it, it was funny because when Danny rang me, his words were something like, OK, so... Because I'd done a couple of things with Danny before, but he rang up and he said, look, I'm making this zombie home movie nobody wants me to make it probably no one's going to want to distribute it or even watch it so we can do whatever we want he said no one cares we can do whatever we want so the whole attitude right from day one with 28 days was let's just do what we want you know if we've got nothing to lose and you know we might as well experiment and be avant-garde and try things out and just do what feels good for us so having that freedom 
which is very rare, by the way, you know, I mean, you'd, I, I don't think I've ever had that kind of freedom on anything since then. Having that kind of freedom to try things out was like opening this whole door, you know, to this, this sort of infinitely possible. So we tried loads of crazy stuff. Um, you know, at one point, the score was just going to be all these like backwards radio sounds. So I recorded all this stuff of all these out-of-tune radios and waving microphones around. It was like totally hippie, Sergeant Pepper, you know. And it was awesome. And it was actually Danny's idea to do this, but it was awesome and I loved it because it was completely atonal. And it was just this crazy collage of what he called Detritus or Detrius or whatever. Um, and it was just fantastic. But it made the film unwatchable. You know, and when yeah. you had a, such a stark and dark brutal film like that anyway to sort of then load on top of that this atonal unmusical score it it just became unwatchable you know we we loved it but we just thought okay we're going too far here you know so we thought let's do something at least musical and then i had the idea of you know for me it's not a zombie film it's it, you know it's more of a road movie for me you know that's how i always saw it really um yes. But it was in the sort of context of it being zombie-esque because you had zombie-esque type people chasing them. Chasing. But they were fast, you know, they were a lot faster than the zombies I remember. But for me, I thought, well, if we're going to... What if we kind of do the opposite of what a zombie film would do? So instead of having big scary music and the big scary scenes and then no music, what you know, we sort of had the idea of what if we have no music in the big scary scenes? leave them to just be brutal mm-hmm. and on the very quiet moment then we pull in this very kind of quiet ambient score so and he liked the idea of that and so that's what I tried to do I mean it didn't always work but that's what I tried to do because I like the idea of the score being like a sort of negative of what a typical zombie score would be mm. you know but once you establish a, a sort of working philosophy for something it, it, you know if you keep at it it does sink in and so for the most part it worked so it i think without people probably realizing why i think it felt very different to what those scores tended to be you know so i think yeah. the fact that well look for one it was a great film and it was a game changer yeah, yeah, in that genre it was a you know we didn't know at the time but it was a total game changer so it was this perfect storm where all I had to do was do something a little different and suddenly you had this this thing where everybody's like oh wow you've reinvented this style of you know and but it was just really just me messing around trying to do something a little bit you know a little bit not the obvious of a zombie thing and even with the thing you know with like so the zombie films up to that point had been very heavily synced you know, if the if the mm. if the zombie jumped out, then you'd have a big squealy, scary noise, and things were very syncopated to picture, and we avoided that completely. You know, most of the tracks yeah, were right. playing across the action. You know, it was either an ambient thing or it just played across it, and it missed all the normal sort of hit points. You know, even to the end where you had this big eight-minute sequence of just mayhem. Um, yeah, it, you know, you've just for most of it, it's just a little acoustic guitar, like you know, grooving through it, you know, with a little piano tinkling. It was, but it worked. It it worked because we'd set up that philosophy from the beginning so that when it got to that end, you weren't expecting the big heavily synced sort of horror stuff because we hadn't done any of that before it. 
So yeah. we just stuck to our guns, basically. And by the end, it, it it sort of worked, you know. So it was a good lesson as well. It was like sometimes you just got to be a little bit brave and just go for it, you know. So I think that's why it was, as a score, it, it sort of got some notice. Um, and of course, when you have a scene like that at the end of a game-changing film like that, then the song that's playing at the end is always going to get attention. And that song just happened to be in the house in a heartbeat, you know. And it built in a way that you know, most people weren't building those type of tracks. It was a very slow burn, you know. And I think when you have that kind of thing, you're building tension. And so that's one of the reasons why I think it was so successful with trailers and commercials, because you had this tension building and then the explosion of the all the guitars and drums kicking in. So, you know, looking back, I can kind of see why it was, you know, why it was attractive to, like, commercials people and trailer people, because it just had those very simple elements. And nothing I did was complicated anyway. It's always broken down into two or three elemental things. And I think that makes it easier for things to be licensed like that too. It's just, you know, it was we couldn't simple. possibly We couldn't possibly have a better intro into what we're going to play next. Well, we are, we are, <laughs> yeah. I guess what it is. <laughs> okay. Well, and I just, just to say that on the, on the production music side and on the library music side here, we, we did see, at the time the film came out, we saw a massive shift in requests from clients, in instrumentation, in the way that they wanted really, tracks yeah. to build and the way that they wanted to use music within trailers and advertising. Really? So it was oh, it was good. an interesting one for us. Because, yeah, and when people come back, you know, suddenly there had been a kind of hybrid thing with trailer music, which was kind of, you know, big orchestras with a kind of heavy metal thing and big yeah. choirs and stuff. That that existed, but suddenly they were like, we don't, we don't, we want it to build much more slowly and we kind of want, you could you could kind of tell what they were getting at. Uh, and what film they'd just seen, so it, it had a huge wow. influence, I think, on the on the on on music to picture. Um, yeah. So next up, we're going to play in the house <laughs> in a heartbeat. Okay. So, uh, John, you've worked with some uh, great directors in your career, uh, Michael Mann, Guy Ritchie, Danny Boyle. How important is the relationship between the composer and the director uh, to the success of the film and the cre- creativity of the film? And any examples of particularly good and, and bad experiences? <laughs> and I'm sure there's plenty um, of examples. <laughs> well, I mean, the relationship is critical. I mean, you can get away with, you know, having a sort of offy relationship with some of the producers and other people, but not with the director. Um, you know, because if you don't trust your director, then you, you're either going into work every day feeling like everything's a waste of time or you're just wearing yourself out trying to impose what you think is right on him for every scene you write. You know, and when that happens, it, it just becomes, a you know, it's just a war zone then and it wears everybody out. So the trust thing is... Is just critical. You you cannot get through it without having some elements of that. You know, and even if I don't agree with the director, and a lot of times I don't, if, if we have the trust there at least, and I believe that somewhere there's a grand vision behind what he's asking me to do, then, 
you know, I can happily get on with it. I can, I can just go, well, I don't agree, but I trust him that he's got the big picture. And that's enough to get you through it, you know. Um, and I guess to a certain degree, it's vice versa, you know. Um, so that, that trust thing is critical. Um, but you don't need to be great mates with them. I mean, sometimes I've made mistakes by becoming mates with the director, you know. Um, it's more important that you just have that trust thing going on. Um, I think that's certainly the main thing. If you have that, you don't need any of the other stuff. Um, yeah. But in terms of experiences, I mean, there's been so many bad experiences, I wouldn't know where to start. <laughs> I've done a lot of films and, like... Um, there's been a couple of bizarre ones. Well, there's been a lot of bizarre ones. I won't mention which director, but I remember on one huge film, we were recording at Fox, and it was literally like a 100-piece orchestra. It was big budget, big budget for the score. And we're about to crack in, and we've literally got the A-list of the A-list of the players because this director demanded the best of the best. So we had, like, the best film musicians in L.A., and just as we're about to start, the director comes in with this young girl, and she's about like 12 or 13, and she says, um, oh, I've got a change to make. Um, my daughter plays viola, and she's going to sit in with the orchestra. And I thought he was joking, you know. And I'm like, ha, 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 tell me, you know, tell me you're joking. But he wasn't, he was serious. And um, so I looked at this little girl, and she just had this fear and disbelief in her eyes, you know. So I went, okay, so... Okay, let's take you in there. We'll get you a chair. And so I had to then go into this huge, big orchestra room with these guys who had done Star Wars and every big film you'd ever heard of and say, okay, so we have a new musician today who's going to sit in and she just started learning to play viola and she's going to play with you. And it was just this like disbelief, you know, the conductor's looking at me like, what the hell are you doing? And I'm just shaking my head going, just... Let's just do it. So they have to get a chair, and we have to literally move the whole string section away to fit this chair in. All the mics had to be moved, and this poor girl was just holding this little viola like someone kill me, you know. So we had to sit it in there, and I then walked back into the room, and I leaned into the engineer, and I said, mute the mic. <laughs> Turn it yeah. And he's like, it's already turned off, you know. So, And then we had to record. And then we had to start recording with this. And it, I mean, the sessions would have been about a quarter of a million dollars a day, you know. And everyone's just staring at this poor girl. And she's just in hell. I felt so sorry for her, you know. And she's trying to play away. And it was funny because it leaned into it and said, just play quietly. Just, you know, don't worry. <laughs> just play quietly. Meaning, like, don't even touch the strings. You know? <laughs> so we did the first cue and then we sort of, we all had to go in and clap her then, you know. And then we sort of escorted her out and handed her back over to her. Her dad, the director, you know. So there's been, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, it's not every day, but I wouldn't say it's not typical, you know, because that that kind, you know, it's Hollywood. These people are bonkers, you know. But that kind yeah, of stuff always yeah. sort of made me laugh afterwards, you know. Excellent. Next, I wanted to go on to talking about um, you've had some experience writing in commercials, and I, I managed to dig out a quote which made me uh made me laugh we we obviously have to do a lot of pitches for ad agencies here and stuff so i could definitely relate but the, the quote is writing music for commercials is like being blindfolded while smiling trendy people spin you around and around shouting riddles and gibberish at you and then suddenly it's over they write you a check which arrives two years later 
Do you remember oh. even saying the quote? <laughs> yeah, no, I remember saying that. I don't know where you dug it up, but I remember, I remember that quote, yeah. But, you know, look, that is what it's like. I'm not kidding here, you know. <laughs> what should have been on the end of that should have been, you know, the, the check which arrived two years later because it was posted from the planet they came from, you know. It's, it's just the way it is. It's, and, I mean, commit commercials will always have that level of madness going on, you know, because on a movie, you're, you're basically dealing with one creative authority, if you like, you know, which is the director. You know, maybe you might have one or two meddling creative producers, but usually you're dealing with the director. So usually it's easy to handle. But on a commercial, on a big campaign, you know, you can have a like a bucket full of, quote, creatives to deal with. So, you know, there's a whole creative team. So there's always going to be more shenanigans on a, you know, on a commercial. And because the time frame is so much shorter, they sort of come at you much quicker because they have to all put their bid in. So you're dealing with a real cacophony sometimes, you know. One of the last campaigns I did, so I had to do a conference call and the producer shouted, you know, hey, John, awesome to talk to you. I'd like you to meet the team. And then he went on to introduce like 15 people in the room. And that was the creative team. I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm dead here. There's this many people <laughs> that are going to all throw their bit in. And I've got to somehow make one piece of music that's going to keep all of these people happy. So that's why it becomes crazy because, you know, they're all throwing their bit in. And sometimes, well, most of the times, you know, 15 great ideas will end up with being one terrible idea, you know? It'll end up being one terrible piece of music because music doesn't work as a sort of democracy. You know, you've got to have one control and idea that sees it through because that's how music works. It's one strong thought and then you end up with something good. You can't just put 15 good ideas and make a good piece of music. It never works that way. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's always fun. <laughs> yeah, we we have a lot of experience, obviously, working with ad agencies here one one thing I remember being taught at the beginning when we used to work with CDs, you'd go to the creative with five suggestions and I got told, don't put the one you think they should use on the top of the pile. They need to think they found it. They yeah, do, right. always. Put, yeah, they put do. it near the bottom. Yeah, yeah uh, but it's got interesting, be, that point. Yeah, they've got to be creative, haven't they? They've got to feel, I've just done something creative. I've made a creative choice, you know, so you've really got yeah. to, yeah, you've got to manage I, them, you know, and you've got to be clever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but you know, at least with commercials, it's usually over quite quickly, you know. Yeah, yeah, but it, but it's interesting. Yeah, as you say, the the number of creative inputs is what probably leads to um, your very um, concise and well put um, <laughs> summary of the experience, which, as Will said, I'm sure a lot of people can uh, relate to. Um, no offence to any ad people listening. <laughs> Um, back to you, Will. Uh, yeah, no. Well, I was going. On, I was going on. I was going to go on to say you haven't done a, a production music album, but it has been talked that you might contribute something or do something for for the library at some point. Um, yeah, I mean, is it something you for sure? Is it something you consider doing? And how 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 much like writing for advertising do you think it will be working with a um, library I mean, creative? It's definitely going to happen. I mean, you know, we sort of we we planned on doing it. I think a couple of years ago, but then I, we moved to a different place and I had to build a new studio and then 
I had to jump straight into this job now. So it's definitely there. It'll definitely happen. Um, it's just, you know, I've just got to get to the end of this thing. And then, you know, in January, we can sit down and, and sort of finish it off. I mean, I've already written quite a few bits and pieces for it. So it was already started. But I think it'll be fun, you know. I mean, I don't think it'll be anything like doing a commercial campaign because, you know, there'll be no deadlines in the same way. And I think um, it'll be more just trying to, you know, write stuff that I think is going to be useful to you and get some feedback and then adjust to that and, you know, just sort of go through. I don't think it'll be... Yeah. Well, I hope it's not going to be like doing a commercial <laughs> No, it won't. It won't. I'm sure it'll be it's very painless now. and yeah, <laughs> yeah, really enjoyable and uh, and hopefully and the most more and more. pleasurable experience you've ever it had. Will yeah, be, well, yeah. we'd uh, we'd love you to do an album at some point. So hopefully, yeah. fingers crossed. No, it'll be more like doing a creative project. It'll be trying to do something as good as it can be, and and then reacting to whatever feedback you know. So um, yeah, it'll be. I definitely think of it as a more of a creative thing than a. Um, and a work for hire to a commercial thing for sure. Uh, so then, uh, your first solo commercial release, uh, anonymous rejected film score, came out last year. Um, how did that project come about? Um, and do you have any other releases in the pipeline along those lines? Well, that one was just—it um, was a personal thing, really. You know, it was—it was basically came about. I was—I was only ever fired once somehow from a movie, which is incredible, really. Um, but it was one of those, and it was a long time ago, but it was one of the scores. It only got to being, like, you know, demoed. It wasn't, I didn't get very far. The producer hated what I did. It was totally wrong for what he wanted. Um, but I really liked it, and usually I sort of don't like, you know, I don't tend to like a lot of my stuff for the movie stuff. But this I kind of like because it was unusual and it was a bit original. And I thought, well, if they don't want it, and I've got the reversion rights anyway, one day I'll just... You know, I'll put it out myself. And then when I sort of was taking a break, I decided to set the record label up and I thought, well, what can I put out first? And I thought, I know. Why don't I just go back to that rejected score from ages ago and have a play with it and see what happens? And once, you know, once I'd opened the bonnet and started to play with some of the stuff that was there, it changed completely anyway. And it was it was fun. You know, there was no pressure. There was no playbacks. There was no director. It was like doing an imaginary score. And it was kind of fun, so I thought, well, I'll just finish this and then I'll release it. And it was a bit like the Partridge Family because I ended up getting like my wife to do vocals on it, and um, yeah. my son uh, Jude did some voiceovers, and Molly did some stuff. So it was a very, it was like a kind of album, you know, or like a home movie version of an album. You know, it was all very in house, and it was very no stress, and it was. It was just nice to just be noodling and just trying things out. So, and it seemed a good thing to try the label out with. So that was why I put that out. Um, and I think and the cover star of the sleeve is your son Jude in a photo. It is, taken yeah, by yeah. Well, it's a Charlotte. photograph. Yeah, it's a photo that Charlotte took when we were at the beach, and she took the picture through her sunglasses, which is why it's got that weird hue. Uh, I remember seeing it, thinking that's really cool. Like you know, you just literally put the sunglasses in front of the camera the iphone or whatever just took it and i thought it was cool so it was all very homemade you know everything about it was homemade it was it just felt like a nice you know and the kids had fun messing around with the mics and doing stuff so it was um it was a lot of fun but you know there's other stuff in the pipeline and now the 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 studio's finished you know next year once you know 
Les Mis is out the way. Um, I don't know which one I'll do, but you know, I'll certainly be putting one of the one of the things out that I'd started. Um, you know, I mean, it's only stuff that I like. It's just stuff I'm putting out for the sake of it, really. But but it's good to keep your sanity doing those things. So there'll be something coming out next year. I'm just not sure which one I'll do. Okay, look forward to it. Yeah, awesome. So, John, um, what are your three favourite film soundtracks ever? And you you can't choose one of your own. I wouldn't choose one of my own. You kidding me? <laughs> um, it's really hard, this, but if I had to choose three, if I really had to yeah. choose three for very different reasons, those three would be Once Upon a Time in America, right. Vertigo, yeah. and, the, and The Godfather. They would uh-huh. be the three. But there would be honourable mentions to... Betty Blue, Psycho, Cinema Paradiso, From Russia With Love, King Kong, some of those things had a big effect on me. And all the spaghetti western stuff. You know, that stuff blew yeah. me away when I was a kid. All the yearly anything. Yeah, because Once Upon a Time in the West is actually my top soundtrack of all time. I think because I saw it when I was very young and I was very affected by it. But it's Once Upon a Time in America, that's Morricone as well. It's Morricone as well. And, in, you know, in a way, it's, it's him spinning himself in a different context. You know, the, the seeds for that were planted with all of the, with Once Upon a Time in the West and a few dollars more and all that amazing stuff, you know. But it's hard to pick one out of them, you know. It's all of that stuff. Like, that whole series he did was just... He, he invented a new genre for doing that kind of score. You know, and I loved him because he would put... He would use instruments that were so wrong in a way and put them in a context where now it, they feel synonymous to that genre. It's like, you know, why would you have an Italian opera singer singing on something, on a cowboy film in, <laughs> in America? You know what I mean? It's yeah, like yeah. you had all of these wrong things that just made this beautiful right at the end. You know, all these instruments, yeah. like an electric guitar would suddenly come in really crazy. You know, so he didn't care. Morricone didn't care if something was period or even geographically, mm. you know, connected in any single way. If he wanted to just have a crazy, tinny electric guitar and some Italian voice singing away, he'd just do it, you know. And it was and yet he made now we associate that sort of voice with a Western film. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, because he Morricone decided that that's what he wanted to do. And I love that. I really love that. You know, it's it's not even juxtaposition, it's just randomness, you know. It's like it just worked. So we made it work and, and now we think of that sound as being to do with, you know, that kind of film. He just made it work because that was one of his genius things, you know. But, um, but yeah, I mean, Morricone's my favourite of all time. He, for me, he's the, the, the pinnacle because of the themes he wrote. You know, he wasn't the mm. greatest composer for, you know, in terms of orchestration or, or structure of a score. It certainly wasn't, you know. Um, but for me, it's all about the themes and the emotion and no one does that stuff, yeah. that side of it. Melodically. Better than him. Yeah, I think I think that the thing that I'm always blown away with is how he attaches a theme to a person, a bit like in an opera. Mm. I know. Which, which it you don't sticks. get in a lot of films, which is incredible, yeah. I know, I know. It just sticks, doesn't it? It's like, yeah, a harmonica or even a music box. And you you see, you see the face. It's like 
even though you haven't watched the film for 20, 30 years, you hear that sound and you just go, it's just recalled straight away. I mean, that's powerful, you know, that's very few people can do that. Um, but he just had that genius for getting to the, the basic elements of things. And he did it so much with just one instrument too, you know, he'd just go, that's all it needs. It's just that. And he would do it, you know, I mean, he's, he's just a genius Morricone. He really truly is. Amazing. Well, I need to go back and watch Once Upon a Time in America again. <laughs> um, I, uh, John, thanks ever such a lot for taking the time. Thank you, John. No uh, problem. For the no, it's been today. fun, guys. It's been fun. I, yeah, a fascinating insight. Yeah, incredible. Really interesting to, to hear all the various stories. And I think we should end by playing an extract, extract from Once Upon a Time Absolutely. in America. Absolutely, yeah.